brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shinny Somara. And I'm Emma Keeling. This week on the podcast, we look at what would happen if COVID-19 took hold in animal populations. And we're looking at the possibility that SARS coronavirus 2 could move back into bats in North America and become established. That would be a catastrophe. I admit this is a little scary, but stories like this one are reminders that despite vaccines being created, we do need to continue to be vigilant, don't we, Shinny? Absolutely, yeah, we can't rest on our laurels. Razor Sounds listeners, I'm sure like us, you got very excited as the news started coming through that multiple trials of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines have been successful. And because we've had our hands full worrying about our loved ones and our lives, there's very high chance most of you were not thinking about the animal kingdom. Yes, and while the first round of vaccines are being delivered, it's important to remember that the disease could find a second lease of life in animals. Now, to get to the bottom of this, I spoke to Tony Goldberg. He's a professor of epidemiology at the University of Wisconsin in the States. I interviewed him for a TV package that we put together recently for the Razor TV show, but he had some fascinating insights on the relationship between animals and humans and diseases. So we thought we'd share the whole interview with you now. Tony, when COVID-19 first emerged, what were your concerns for animals around the world? Well, I have to admit, when COVID-19 first emerged, when I heard the first inkling of the news from uh, from China in 2019, I, I underestimated its impact. The reason is because I thought it was going to be another SARS or another MERS. It was the same type of virus, so I figured it would burn through a few populations quickly, but be easy to contain. What I didn't appreciate and what's become a big issue since then is the fact that unlike SARS and MERS, uh, SARS coronavirus 2 has this very long pre-symptomatic transmission period. So you can be, as everybody knows now, you can feel fine and still transmit the virus. That was not the case with previous emerging coronavirus. So um, that was the realization that suddenly made me afraid. And I think it is largely responsible for the fact that we've been unable to contain the virus. So I, I, like many people, underestimated the risk at the beginning, but uh, came to realize it was a much bigger risk than previous emerging coronaviruses because of its unique biology. So when you found out that it was going to be a lot worse than you thought, how did you think it would affect animals? We tend to think of coronaviruses as going from animals to people, zoonotic transmission. But I and many of my colleagues, when SARS coronavirus 2 emerged, began to wonder if it couldn't go in the other direction. Um, So there, there are two types of animals that that worry me, and I'm actually doing research on both. The first are non-human primates. So I've had a long-term research project in Uganda where I studied chimpanzees there. And the focus of my research over the past few years has been human respiratory viruses that are getting into chimpanzees and killing them. This is an unfortunately common occurrence the viruses we found in our populations of chimps are common human pediatric viruses, viruses like rhinovirus, adenovirus, uh, metanumovirus, things that cause the sniffles in children. And yet somehow they're getting into chimps and killing them. 
So there's grave concern right now that SARS coronavirus 2 began into chimps. And because it's so virulent in people, we're worried that it could cause a lot of damage in chimps. So um, I'm part of several international groups that are trying to assess and mitigate that risk by doing things like suggesting restrictions on visitation of apes in the wild by researchers and tourists and, and, uh, and others. Um, but it's, it's very worrisome. And the, the other system of animals that uh, is worrisome is bats. Um, I have a, a new grant from the National Science Foundation with colleagues at New Mexico State University here in the United States. And we're looking at the possibility that SARS coronavirus 2 could move back into bats in North America and become established. That would be a catastrophe because once viruses become established in wildlife reservoirs, they are very difficult to eradicate. The, the classic example of that on, on this side of the pond is um, West Nile virus, which came in 1999 and established in wild bird populations here and now has an enzootic cycle, meaning it's perpetuated by a transmission cycle between mosquitoes and birds. And then it spills over into people and other mammals every year in late summer. Um, we'll never get rid of it because it's, it's in wildlife. So if that were to happen with SARS coronavirus too, it would be a game changer for our ability to eradicate the virus. We've seen what happened in Denmark with mink, and we know that the reason for the initial culling is that experts were worried that the virus was going to mutate in the mink and be passed back to humans. Is that kind of mutation a concern with bats, for example? That is a concern. Um, and I should mention that my home state of Wisconsin is also an epicenter of mink farming in the United States. And like Denmark, we're facing this this uh, possibility in a very real way, and they're and, and we're worried. So um, I think what what I worry most about is not necessarily that the virus is going to spill back into animals and mutate into some Andromeda strain of the virus. I, I worry that if it gets into wild animals and circulates there, that will create what we call in epidemiology a reservoir a population of animals that is infected enough to serve as a permanent home for a virus that can then spill over repeatedly into humans, uh, which would of course be terrible. Um, it is true that when viruses switch hosts, they tend to uh, adapt to those new hosts, hosts and mutate and evolve. And there is some evidence that that has been happening on, on a limited scale in, in mink. Um, the fear there, I don't think is, is, again, some Frankenstein monster virus, but it would be terrible, especially with the great news about vaccines that's come out recently, if the changes that happen in animals were such that they allowed the virus to, to evolve around the vaccines we've created. I, knowing what I do about the virus and the vaccines, I don't think that's a high possibility, but it would be such a, a terrible thing to happen that we should consider it seriously. As fear rises within humans, there is that danger of a, a knee-jerk reaction to kill animals so the disease doesn't come back and hurt us. Are you concerned for animal populations? Yes, I, I am. Um, I'll just say that the emergence of COVID-19 has not been great for bat conservation. Um, as, as you can imagine, uh, 
people are fearful of of bats that in in our cultures you know from stories of vampires to real fears about rabies virus we we tend to have a phobia about bats and uh, bats are incredibly valuable players and ecosystems I mean we all know that they eat a ton of insect pests they help our agriculture they pollinate flowers they disperse seeds in the tropics they do all sorts of wonderful things and we should appreciate them but with the uh, the likely origin of the new virus in bats not proven yet but likely um, yes there has been a sentiment chain where people are fearful again of bats so I worry about that we, we also saw an interesting thing in the field of veterinary medicine at the beginning of the pandemic, when, if you remember, there were early reports about cats and some about dogs. So there was the, the famous case in the Bronx Zoo of the big cats, the lions and tigers that had become infected by a keeper. And then there are confirmed cases of the virus in domestic cats, not cases where the cats have transmitted it back to people, but the cats can get it. So we saw a wave of pet abandonment in veterinary medicine, people who were afraid of their own pets out of fear of getting the virus from them. And that really was unfounded. Uh, the, the, the thing we tell the public now in veterinary medicine is that cats and dogs should be treated as they are as members of your family. So keep them socially distanced, uh, keep them within your household, and uh, protect them like you would anybody else, and you'll be fine. And there really has not been any evidence of uh, transmission of the virus from pets to people, but rather the reverse. So, um, you know, we, in, in veterinary medicine and in epidemiology, we're constantly trying to uh, dispel rumors and myths that evolve out of genuine concern that people have about their safety. But, um, we try to be as evidence-based as possible. And I, I think some of the stories about the dangers of animals have been overblown. Do you know how many species could possibly be infected, whether they react strongly like mink or mildly like domestic pets? What is the research telling us? That, that is a great question and one that people are working on. We, there, there's two ways we've looked at it. There's, the first way is what I just mentioned, that we look to see what animals have actually been infected. And so far, the story seems to be cats, yes, dogs, probably mink for sure. There's also uh, many teams who are trying to predict which animals might be infected uh, in, in nature by looking at the genome sequences of the receptor for the virus. It's a, it's a gene that we all have, all, all mammals called ACE2. People have probably heard of it. And people have compared the human version of that gene to the version of that gene in many animal species and have tried to rank other species in terms of their predicted susceptibility to the virus. And a lot of it makes sense. Non-human primates are highly susceptible. Most of them are, with the exception maybe of lemurs. Um, and we know from experiments in labs that Asian macaques, a common laboratory monkey species, can in fact be infected and does in fact get sick. Um, beyond the primates, it gets a little fuzzier. There are, um, of course, suspicions about many species of bats. The the mink and their relatives, you know, that that's their their exquisite susceptibility is a little bit surprising. But we also know, for example, ferrets are very susceptible to influenza. 
they're used as an animal model. And one, one of the one of the, the kind of little quirky things about veterinary medicine is if if you have if you're a veterinarian and you have a client with ferrets, and your client comes in because the ferret is coughing and sneezing, and their whole family is coughing and sneezing, you pretty much know it's the flu. So um, yeah, so you know you can't make this stuff up. So just by sort of our knowledge of that particular group of animals, we suspect that ferrets and and mink and their relatives might be susceptible. Uh, af after that, we're not sure. The, the ACE2 receptor is only one of many steps that the virus has to go through to infect an animal. So um, we're going to have to wait for the data, but there are groups who are trying to do experiments in cell cultures and experiments with laboratory animals because it is a very important question. But there's a bigger genetic variation between different animal species than we find within a human population. And we are developing vaccines that are relatively far along. So how do we treat the animal kingdom where you can see that very great genetic variation? Good, good question. You're, you're right. As, as animals go, or even as apes go, and we're apes, humans are remarkably genetically homogeneous. We're kind of lucky that way. We don't have a lot of variation compared to chimpanzees or gorillas. So um, we don't have to worry about these big genetic differences between our populations. We're, we're all one big happy family. Um, but the best way we can prevent the spillback of SARS coronavirus 2 to animals is to control it in people. There's no doubt. Um, the vaccine results are very promising. Uh, the public health recommendations about mask wearing and social distancing are essential. Um, if we are able to control it in people, then the risk of it getting back into animals goes away. Because if it does get into animals, we don't have good options. It's not clear, for example, how we would vaccinate wild apes against coronavirus. Um, you know, it, from the two vaccines that are candidates right now, there are two dose vaccines. So, you know, Maybe you'll be able to dart the ape the first time, but it's going to know the second time when you come after it with that dart gun. So um, it, it's it's very difficult. So our primary prevention, the preventing the virus from getting into animals in the first place, is really is really our only strategy. So, Shinny, what have you found interesting or exciting in science this week? Well, Emma, continuing with the COVID obsession and um, preoccupation that we all have at the moment, I a story that really caught my interest was one about health um, and staying fit during the pandemic. I don't know about you, but I've really sort of had to come up with creative ways of staying fit and healthy and keeping up my exercise regime um, whilst I've been stuck indoors. And I think many of my friends have been feeling the same way. And what I came across was research presented this year at the EACVI, which is the European Association of Cardiovascular Imaging. Basically, they were saying that if you're able to climb four flights of stairs in one minute, that's a good sign that you're healthy. Oh, that's it. Now that's a good one. Because, you know, usually with health things, it's like, it's a little bit, how do I test this? But that is a great test. I just have to find a few stairs. So my first question was, what is the definition of one flight of stairs? And actually, it's an average of 13 steps. So 
Um, in order to conduct this test yourself, you'd have to find four flights of stairs consisting of 13 steps per flight. And if you can walk up those stairs in less than a minute, then you've got good health. Doesn't matter if you feel like you're about to pop out a lung at the top. That would actually indicate something very significant. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating that this study was conducted in the first place because I think it was generated because doctors really needed to come up with some way of gauging people's health whilst they were not able to visit doctors' practices. And so what they did was they tested 165 symptomatic patients. So these were people who uh, they had symptoms including chest pain or shortness of breath during exertion. And basically what they had to do was go on a treadmill and the um, intensity of the exercise they had to do whilst on that treadmill was gradually increased. And during that time, doctors were able to measure their metabolic equivalents or METs. And after that treadmill exercise, they were then asked to rest for 15 to 20 minutes. And then they were asked to climb these four flights of stairs, but not stopping or pausing. And the time it took them to do that was then recorded. And anyone that climbed the stairs in less than a minute was seen to have an MET of 10, which is a great number to have. Anything more than a minute and a half meant that you were achieving an MET of eight or less. And that's not such a good sign. By making this comparison of being on a treadmill and exhausting yourself through exercise on a treadmill and then comparing that to your ability to climb up four flights of stairs actually gave quite a accurate or reliable result as to where your health was basically on the scale. I've got another simple way of testing that. If you can look at your couch or sofa and you can see the outline of your body, then you're also not very uh, in good shape. <laughs> so what's your interesting story of the week? My story is a lovely story from nature involving giant hornets and feces, or what most children would call poo. Yep, that's right. I'm raising the bar. So this is the stuff of nightmares. Giant killer hornets. They are a close relative of murder hornets. I don't know who's coming up with these names, but it's not really helping the human insect relationship, really. But these things are scary. So giant hornets are about half the size of your finger and they attack bees in large gangs. Dozens of them slaughter thousands of bees. And then the hornets carry off the bee larvae to feed their offspring. Oh, it's gruesome. But Bees. I love bees. And we don't do enough to help bees. But anyway, they're, they're sorting this one out themselves. So they've developed a defense mechanisms. Well, a few actually, such as hissing at them or mobbing the hornets to suffocate them. But their newest strategy involves feces. And it's shocked scientists because bees are famously hygienic in order to prevent disease in their hives. And so Asian honeybees have been dotting pallets of animal poo on the outside of the entrance to their nests. And this repels attacks by these giant killer hornets. Now, scientists are not sure exactly uh, why these poo pellets are particularly repulsive. I mean, we can take a guess, but I mean, this is insects, so who knows? But this behavior is widespread throughout Vietnam, and it's also been reported in China, Thailand, Bhutan, and Nepal. 
And they found that the hornet spent less than half the time at this nest entrances with the dung spotting compared with clean hives and 94% less time trying to chew their way in. Oh, frightening. Uh, and a final experiment discovered that hives dotted with the secretions that giant hornets use to flag nests for attack were quickly plastered with poo. So if the, you know, they're, they're the hornets and they dot them and go, okay, guys, go and attack there. It's almost like a flare, isn't it? Sending it up, let's attack this nest. And then the bees are like, jump into action, go and get some poo from, you know, farmyards, animals, whatever. And then they cover these secretions and it sort of wipes out these, um, these alert systems, I guess. Um, but I mean, murder hornets have been freaking out beekeepers in the US and Canada for over the past year. And other sort of giant hornets, you can find them regularly around um, in, the, in the UK, apparently. I'm going to have to keep a closer eye out when I go out walking. Um, and, but the problem is that bees in Europe and North America have not evolved the defences against these until now with little poo pellets. Well done, the bees. That's amazing. Those hornets are terrifying. We had one in our apartment this summer and they are humongous. A giant one. And so was it as big as your finger? Yeah, it was. Ri- I mean, it was like I've seen hummingbirds smaller than this hornet. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I have been stung by a hornet um, and uh, not a giant one, thank goodness. But it was totally different to a bee sting. It was, you know, it burned. It was really nasty. So getting stung by a giant one must be, you know, 10 times as bad. I must say my my respect for bees has gone up. I mean, it can't get any higher for me. I just, and I can't believe what all these nasty things that we're doing to bees and killing them off. We need the bees. But anyway, that's another story. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGTN Europe and type in Razor. But we also have our own YouTube channel now. Type in Razor Science Show and it will take you straight there. Until next time, bye. <laughs>